Now I'm pleased to introduce today's speaker. Christian uh, Despigna is a writer based in New York and Williamsburg, Virginia, where he's a regular speaker and volunteer at Colonial Williamsburg. He joins us today to discuss his new book, the subject of which is probably fairly well known in these parts, given that he was a man of action in this area at about 250 years ago, but has sadly uh, faded from our national memory. The book, entitled Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of jo Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero, is a book for which Mr. Spigna spent two decades researching and writing while uncovering previously unknown facts, documents, and artifacts in the process. The Wall Street Journal described Founding Martyr as a gripping biography of one of the American Revolution's earliest activists, and historian Nathaniel Thilbrick called it a laudable and carefully, uh, I'm sorry, laudable and carefully researched book. Please join me in welcoming Christian Despigna. Good afternoon. Okay, I want to get right into it because we have a lot to cover. But what I want to start covering is who Joseph Warren was, why we don't remember him, what happened to his legacy, why did it fall into obscurity. And I hope to cover some of these questions. And if I could sum up the book maybe in one sentence, it would be that before there was George Washington, there was Dr. Joseph Warren. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But to start, Warren was president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. He was head of its Committee of Safety. He was the Grand Master of Ancient Masons throughout North America. He is the author of the Suffolk Resolves, which was an instrumental document which I will talk about. He's the head of a vast intelligence network. He's nominated a major general three days before the Battle of Bunker Hill. He's involved in four battles and skirmishes between the 60 days of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. He delivers two fiery Boston massacrations. He's delivering speeches, he's writing polemical arguments, and he's involved in every single major insurrectionary event in the 10 years leading up to independence in Boston. And sadly, many don't remember him. And if you think Warren is not really remembered here in Massachusetts, once you start going south, west, I mean, he's really unknown in other states. But really, to start from the beginning, I want to start at the end of what I consider to be Warren's zenith. And this is the centennial anniversary of the Bunker Hill Battle, June 17, 1875. Now, this is a picture of the obelisk in Charlestown, Massachusetts. This was important because 350,000 people descend on the city of Boston to celebrate Warren and the men who fought at the Battle of Bunker Hill. But why it's so important is, is because it's a healing moment in the nation. This is the first time since the beginning of the Civil War that Northern and Southern troops are marching in unison. So again, it's a very healing moment in the nation, but sadly after this, Warren really falls into obscurity. It's, it's always nice to have a younger member in the crowd here, a very younger member. So. Okay, now, anytime I can get my hands on pictures from the revolutionary era or something that pertains to it, it's always very exciting. And I think this is one of the reasons that the Civil War is more popular than the American Revolution, because we have the benefit of photographs. 
And when you look at the paintings of the founding fathers and this era, it almost seems cartoonish, right? These men with makeup, powdered wigs, ruffled silk shirts, stockings, high heels. But this is an actual picture from the Centennial Parade. And I used to joke around back in the fall saying there were more people at this parade than the Red Sox World Series Parade. But you can just see literally how many people descend on the city of Boston to celebrate Warren. Now, when you look at the primary source documents, I came to this project over 20 years ago with a series of questions. When you look at these primary source documents, the evidence, by all rights, Warren should have cast his lot with the loyalists. Why did he join the Patriot Whigs? And there's two incidents that I trace this to. And the first one is a book that was called More Wonders of the Invisible World. This was a book written against the Mather family who had published a book supporting the Salem witch trials. Now, the Mather family in the late 17th century was one of the most powerful Bay Colony families, okay? Joseph Warren's maternal great-grandfather wrote that book, More Wonders of the Invisible World, and came out against the powerful Mather family. No one would publish it in the colonies. He had to seek publication in London. Now, this was a huge stance to take against the Mather family, and Warren his family, his descendants would have talked about this. He would have been aware of this incident. Now, the second one was called the Land Bank. This was a class conflict. In the late 1730s, early 1740s, there was a shortage of coin in the colonies. And a group of men got together and created the Land Bank. And what they created were notes of paper backed by land instead of currency. However, this was done without authorization of the Crown or Parliament. So. The politically powerful loyalists at this time, the powerful wealthy merchants, come out against the land bank. Now, many historians have claimed that this is one of the reasons that Samuel Adams became such a vehement patriot, because his father was financially ruined. Samuel Adams' father was one of the principal investors and organizers of the land bank. But what we didn't know is that Warren's grandfather was also one of the principal investors in the land bank, and he was absolutely financially ruined. Now, Warren would have grown up around this, seeing Parliament dipping their pockets into, dipping their hands into the colonists' pockets. This would have affected his mother, his uncles. Warren became very close with his grandfather, okay? You see all these letters for 20 years that Warren's grandfather's writing, pleading for help from the courts for assistance. He's selling farmland, farm animals, personal possessions to help pay off this land bank debt. And he eventually dies in 1767. But again, I said Warren and his grandfather were very close. Warren's grandfather was one of his early mentors. Now, Warren enters Harvard in 1755. At the time, class rank is based upon a student's social standing. So it would be as if I came to you and said, how much are your parents worth? And we went throughout the room. And we ranked first to last. To give you an idea, the first ranked student in the class of 1755 was the son of Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull. This is a picture of Harvard President Edward Holyoke. When Warren enters Harvard, he's ranked 31 in a class of 45. He's ranked towards the bottom. What this means that if you're ranked near the bottom for your four years at Harvard, you're going to room with bottom ranked students. The amazing thing about Warren is by his senior year, he's ranking with the number two and the number eight scholars in Harvard. He's noted as a top scholar. But during Warren's freshman year, tragedy strikes. Now, Warren grew up on a farm 
in Roxbury, Massachusetts. His father was a farmer. He harvested Roxbury russet apples. Now, at the height of the harvest in October 1755, Warren's father is picking apples from a Warren russet tree, dies, and breaks his neck. Now, every history book to this point has told us that Warren was at Harvard. He wasn't. According to Harvard's primary source documents, Harvard was closed for the first vacation of what would be six weeks vacation throughout the year. So Warren would have been home helping his father harvest those apples. And this is one of the reasons why I believe that Warren starts to gravitate towards a career in medicine. Now, this is an example of a Warren Russert apple tree. This was taken on the, one of the descendants' farms. And let me just say this. Every history book for the past 120, 130 years has told us that the Warren direct descendants are extinct. They're not. About 10 years ago, I discovered them. There's about 30 of them. And this was significant to this project because they opened their homes to me. They shared material culture pieces, family heirlooms, family trees. And it really allowed me to deconstruct this project in a way that had never been done before. And let's also talk about why we don't know much about Warren. There's only been really two, a handful of biographies written about him in the last almost 250 years. Why is that? Because there's such a scarcity of primary source documents. Beginning in 1768, when British troops land in Boston, Warren burns all his personal correspondence for fear of arrest. In 1775, according to family documents, he burns more of his personal correspondence right after the battles of Lexington and Concord. There's two mid-19th century fires that occurred, and there were whispers of this. Did they happen? Did they not happen? I actually located newspapers and documents verifying these fires, and it was so dramatic because the paintings that are in Museum of Fine Arts Boston were actually re rescued from these homes. Now, okay, one of the questions I also had, everybody knows Samuel Adams, right? Everything you read about Adams and Warren, they just say that Adams takes Warren under his wing and mentors him. But how did they meet? They're a generation apart. I just had a lot of questions. This was Warren's real first mentor. This is Dr. James Lloyd. Now, when Warren decides to become a doctor, there's no medical schools at the time. So you either have to apprentice with doctors in the glittering capitals of Europe and complete your apprenticeship there, or if you don't have the money, you can do it here in the colonies with someone who did that. Warren chooses wisely because Lloyd is politically connected. When he comes back from Europe, he's got some of the most up-to-date medical techniques. He starts practicing obstetrics, smallpox inoculations. He comes from a wealthy Anglican family. And here's what's important. When Warren is doing his apprenticeship with Lloyd, he's, he's not just learning how to master the nuances of the bedside manner. He's learning how to become a gentleman because how does a figure like Warren, who's been referred to as a bare-legged milk boy to furnish the Boston market, how does he rise to the top political, military, economic, and social circles in the Bay Colony? It's almost inexplicable, similar to his legacy. But it starts here because Lloyd is wealthy, he's, he's entertaining high society. So now, Warren comes to prominence in 1764. This is just an example of a print to show you that at the time, obviously medicine is very rudimentary at this time, but obstetrics are handled by midwives. And now Lloyd and Warren really start practicing in obstetrics. Now, in 1764, there's a horrific smallpox outbreak in Boston. Warren and about 12 other doctors set up shop at Castle William to perform inoculations. 
This is where Warren first comes across John Adams, and John Adams writes the earliest description we have of Warren, and John Adams is very impressed with Joseph Warren. Warren inoculates about 100 patients, not one of them die, and when the outbreak subsides, newspaper articles are coming out saying, we owe an enormous debt of gratitude to these doctors. They become the heroes of the colony, because think about it. At this time, there's no movie stars, athletes, superheroes. Who are the heroes in the colonies at this time? It's either nobility or military figures. But immediately, Warren starts to come to prominence. He opens his medical practice. It winds up becoming one of the most busiest. He becomes very proficient. You can just read his medical journals. And I'm very happy to be here, let me say, because the Boston Athenaeum has a wealth of resources with the John Greenleaf ledgers. These had never been really deconstructed before. There's 10 years of John Greenleaf's medical ledgers that chronicle every single purchase Joseph Warren made for his medical practice. I mean, and there's things like penis syringes he's buying. And I went to the apothecary at Colonial Williamsburg and said, why would he be buying penis syringes? And she said, well, sexual diseases were rampant in Boston. He's buying choirs of paper. He's buying wine. He's buying all kinds of things. So we see that Warren's not just running a physician's office, but he's really running an apothecary shop. He's selling all kinds of different remedies and medicines and things he learned how to make under the tutelage of Dr. James Lloyd. Now, this is a painting of Elizabeth Hutan Warren. This is in Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. The only thing we've really known about Elizabeth to date was a wedding notice and a death notice in the newspaper. It's been said that this portrait was painted by John Copley. It wasn't. I found primary source document proving that this was painted by Henry Pelham. Anybody ring a bell, Henry Pelham? All right, this is the man who Paul Revere borrows the Boston Massacre engraving from. He's a half-brother of John Copley. Why do we get excited over a painting? Well, it extends Warren's social network. It's proving that he has a foot on both sides of the political divide with loyalists and with Tories. Now, I found a, a nice amount of information about Elizabeth. Her father was a Mason. He was a wealthy Anglican merchant. And very important, when Warren marries her, they inherit a sizable amount of money and property and half of what was called Hutan's Wharf. This was important because now Warren becomes owner of a wharf in Boston, which connects him to the seaside population, which will have consequences during the destruction of the tea. And we'll get to this. Now, here's the only known painting to exist of Dr. Joseph Warren. So any other painting you will see is based on this Copley portrait. And again, why does Warren become a patriot? It's financial suicide for him. He's getting so much financial patronage from Thomas Hutchinson. When Warren's father dies in 1755, it's Hutchinson who's appointed as the administrator of the Warren estate. Hutchinson appoints Warren to the almshouse physician position, where Warren is earning almost a thousand pounds between 1769 and 1772. In 1765, there's a horrific bankruptcy in Boston, the Nathaniel Wheelwright bankruptcy. Warren is appointed as an administrator of the estate. Warren has no business being appointed as this financial administrator. But it just shows you the patronage he's getting from some of the most powerful loyalist people in the colony. Now, Henry Knox, Thomas Flucker. My New York accent, I have to be very careful about that last name pronunciation. Now, 
I talk about these concentric circles with Warren. Now think about it. Boston at the time is a town of about 15,000 people. So it's very easily to know your neighbors, but we've never made this connection with Knox before, okay? So what we do know is that Henry Knox had his bookshop on Washington Street. So little has been known about Warren that we didn't even know where he lived. Turns out that Warren for a time lived on Washington Street. Nicholas Bose, who was Knox's mentor, Warren was friendly with him. Warren actually borrowed a sizable amount of money from Nicholas in 1765 during this bankruptcy issue, okay? Knox is also selling similar medicinal remedies that Warren is selling. But here's the real connection. Now, Thomas Flucker at this time holds the third highest position in the royal colony of Massachusetts. This is Warren's medical entry from 1767. He is the Flucker family physician between 1764 and 1767. Now, if we look right there, okay? So this is, gives you an example of how I went about the research. What can this one page tell us about Warren? Well, we know that he's not just doing strictly medical procedures of inoculations, obstetrics, but now he's doing teeth extraction, okay? It shows you he's treating slaves. He's treating the entire family. Lucy Flucker, who becomes Henry Knox's wife, she would have known Warren as a little girl. So there's been issues about this whole Margaret Kemble Gage spy thing. We've, if anyone's seen the Sons of Liberty, please forget anything you saw there. But it's really very possible that Lucy Flucker was getting information from her father, feeding it to Henry Knox, and Knox is feeding it to Warren. Again, keep in mind that Warren is at the head of a vast intelligence network, both organized and unorganized. And it just shows you some of Warren's connections to these figures that we never made the connection to before. Now, let's get to Samuel Adams and the whole mentor issue. This was the question. Was Adams Warren's first mentor? I don't think so. His father passes away. He gravitates to the grandfather. He gravitates to James Lloyd. But here's the, some of the smoking guns. Look how he spells Adams' last name. A-D-A-M-E-S. Now, I know that 18th century journals and diaries are filled with spelling errors. But when you look at Warren's first medical ledger, the penmanship is Hancockian. There's no misspellings. This is in 1768. If Warren and Adams were this close as history has told us, why would Warren spell his name wrong? But here's the real smoking gun. He says that Sam Adams is the honorable speaker of the House of Representatives. Adams was never the speaker. He was the clerk. If these men were this close, Warren would have known that. So what I'm saying is we need to re-look at this relationship between Warren and Adams. While I have no doubt that Adams was a political mentor to Warren, that Adams was a political mentor to Warren, what I'm saying is when Warren enters this Whig faction, he's already heavily entrenched in his radical political philosophies. Now, this I got really excited about. Now, Massachusetts Historical Society has Warren's medical ledgers between 63 and 68, 74, 75. So 69 to 73 are missing. I bought this at auction about 12 years ago. This was in someone's attic. Now, you can see the date, 1771. So at the time I bought this, it proved the existence of these missing ledgers. Now, again, keep in mind, Warren is someone we don't have a lot of primary source documents about. Let me give you an example. Everybody know the biography John Adams by David McCullough? Right? 
If we kill John Adams in 1776, right after he signs the Declaration of Independence, he'd be 40 years old. So he would have lived a year beyond Warren, and he would have been six years older. McCullough's biography doesn't even finish the second chapter, if that's what happens. So again, we don't have personal letters, letters of correspondence. So anything we can find are these nuggets of gold. And I was able to make between, I think, four and five dozen new discoveries about Warren. And this was one of them. But this is significant because, look, Jacob Royal. The Royal family is a powerful loyalist family. They're also one of the biggest slaveholders in the state of Massachusetts. So it shows you that in Warren's medical practice, he's treating the bottom of the barrel of the social sphere, slaves, sailors. But he's also treating the royal governor, Thomas Hutchinson, the lieutenant governor, the royal secretary, Thomas Flunker. Now, this is why I got really excited about this. Christopher Monk, ring a bell to anybody? Christopher Monk was the sixth victim of the Boston Massacre, who dies of his wounds in 1780. So again, this is just another neat connection between Warren and the Boston Massacre, okay? Now, Warren's social status. How do we know how wealthy he was? His father was not a powerful politician, he was a farmer. I came across this document in the Boston Public Library. You see this here? To painting a carriage remain. This is significant because we didn't even know if Warren had a chaise, a carriage. This proved that he was able to be very mobile, that he had a carriage. But vermilion at the time in the colonies is the single most expensive color, and it's in high fashion in London. So it would be as if I was cruising around these streets in a cherry red trench Bentley with a fountain in the back. I mean, the wealth is so ostentatious at this point, and John Hancock also has a vermilion carriage. So you start to see Warren on a similar social and economic footing as some of the most powerful, wealthy people in the colony. And let me just go back to this for a second, because remember when I said we didn't even know where Warren lived? This was another thing. So gentlemen at this time owned mansion estates. I actually found that Warren bought a mansion estate in West Boston. And look at this. This is only one of many pages of painting and all these custom construction upgrades that Warren is having done to this house. And it's just amazing because you're able to paint a picture of what this house would have looked like. How many dormers he's putting in. He's putting in two kitchens, a well. Even here, look, to painting a closet blue. It was just amazing to get a visual image of what this house would have looked like at the time about someone we know nothing about. And let me just give you an example of this sort of glass, half-empty scholarship that sort of plagued the Warren literature. In 1961, there was a biography written about Joseph Warren, and it was a very good biography. But in the beginning, the biographer declares that this book is the first biography to come out on Warren in 100 years, and it's only intended as a new look at his public career because a personal biography of Warren cannot be written. And this was part of the challenging part of this project. When I began 20 years ago, there was no guarantee I'd find anything or come across anything, but I got very lucky. And believe me, luck is a very, very big factor in this. I'm not a genius. Now, why was this exceptional? It's just a clock. This clock is in the Scottish Rite Masonic Museum and Library in Lexington, Massachusetts. Nobody knew if it belonged to Warren. I found primary source documents showing that it did belong to Warren. This would have been sitting in his office on the eve of Lexington and Concord. Why is this significant? It's significant because this is probably one of the most single expensive items somebody can have in their house at the time. And it proves that the fact that Warren had an eight-day clock, which meant it only had to be wound 
every eight days, as juxtaposed to a 24-hour clock that had to be wound every 24 hours is even more expensive. But someone who has a clock at this time, it just shows that their time is so important that it needs to be tracked precisely. So again, it's just another clue into Warren's personal life and rising position within a highly stratified Puritan society. Here's a close-up of the clock. Now this. This came from the Warren family heirlooms, the direct descendants. This was a silver porridge handle that John Adams had given to Joseph Warren. Why is it important? Well, it's important because it underscores the close relationship between Adams and Warren. We knew that Adams was a patient of Warren. He was a political colleague. But this is just another material culture piece that links the two gentlemen. And we also found that we've known Warren had four children. But due to cross-references with the Brattle Street baptismal records and a family tree in the direct descendant's possession, I was able to prove that the Warrens had a child that died in infancy, a daughter named Mary, and this was right around the time of the Boston Massacre, and they had another daughter subsequently that they named after Mary, so a daughter named Mary. And again, you know, we think about this time, we think about Warren's relationship with Paul Revere. Paul Revere had lost children, so again, these are just common denominators that are bonding these men. You know, I didn't want to really get bogged down in the details of the Boston Massacre, the Tea Party. You guys have heard this story a million times already, but what I want to talk about is Warren's roles in those incidents. So here's that famous engraving that Revere borrows from Henry Pelham. Now, why is it important? Well, on this day, I actually found a court document that Warren signs in Boston proving that he was in Boston the day of the massacre. We know he's involved in the autopsies, but this was the critical component, okay? Warren's one of three men appointed to prepare an account of the massacres, okay? A short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. They collect 96 depositions. I cross-referenced these depositions with Warren's medical ledgers, some of the letters, and about one-third of the people that he collects depositions from are closely tied to Warren. Now, this is just a propaganda coup to get this information across the Atlantic before the British can give their version of events. Now, we talk about material culture pieces. A lot of historians have claimed that Warren married his first wife due to financial gains. I didn't believe that. I don't believe that now. What I did come across was that when Warren's first wife dies in 1773, he has a mourning ring made in her honor, okay? Now, the way we discern mourning jewelry from regular jewelry at this time in the colonies is this black band around the ring. It usually says the deceased names, the year they died, the age when they died. Here's the sketch I found of the ring that Warren had made for his wife. Now, anyone having a mourning ring made at this time is going to be financially solvent. But look at this. There's 16 precious stones around the ring. So again, we're talking about someone who's risen to the top levels in society. Now, here's a modern-day sketch of what exactly that ring would have looked like. And the amazing thing was, I found this, I got so excited, I called the direct descendants, and the family historian says, I remember my grandmother talking about this ring. And he said, you might want to call my cousins because they have a box of some of Warren's items. And I got in touch with the cousins, and it turned out that someone had broken into their house a couple of years before, and the box was stolen. So I have uh, my spies on eBay looking for mourning jewelry. But what's also significant is that in 1843, during the dedication of the Bunker Hill Monument, one of Warren's nieces was there, and she was wearing a bracelet. And the bracelet was woven from Warren's hair that his wife had made. 
and it passed down through the generations. And this was also an item that was lost, but that the direct descendants knew had existed. Now, we didn't even know where Elizabeth was buried. I found the source documents proven she was buried at Copps Hill in the Hutan family crypt. Now, we don't have anything about Warren, no letters, but here's an incredible thing he wrote after his wife died, and it reads, if fading lilies when they droop and die, robbed of each charm that pleased the gazing eye, with sad regret the grieving mind inspire, what then when virtue's brightest lamps expire? Now, it's just an amazing piece that gives us a window into Warren's personal thoughts, his feelings on a man that we really have nothing about. And this is similar to a letter that Paul Revere had written when he first met his second wife. So it's just, again, it's cool to find these nuggets of gold. The Tea Party. Okay. Every time you read a Tea Party list or anything involving the Tea Party, it's always been said that Warren wasn't involved. And while I agree that Warren was not on these ships physically dumping chests of tea overboard, it's naive to think that Warren was not heavily, heavily involved in the planning of the destruction of the tea. For a month before this incident, Warren is having meetings with ship owners. He's involved with the tea consignees. So one of the tea consignees, Richard Clark. Warren has at least two meetings with him. Who's Richard Clark? John Copley's father-in-law. Two of the other tea consignees, who are they? Thomas Hutchinson's son. Warren has a close relationship with Hutchinson. He also went to Harvard the same time Hutchinson's sons went there. Now, Warren is present during Old, at Old South Meeting House the night of the destruction of the tea. Warren is half owner of Hutan's Wharf, connecting him with ship captains, sailors. It's naive to think that Warren had nothing to do with this, and after the meeting at Old South Meeting House, puts his hands in his pockets and strolls home. There's no way. Warren's fingerprints are all over this incident. Now, I know this is an assault on acceptable grieving times, modern. Warren starts dating a woman named Mercy Scully, okay? This is an incredible woman. Similar to his first wife, we don't know much about her. He starts dating her in the spring summer of 1774. These are her parents, John Scully and Mary Greenleaf, who is the sister of Warren's apothecary suppliers, whose volumes reside here at Boston Athenaeum. Now, I came across two incredible letters that Mercy Scully had written that had never been published before. They were misfiled. One of them is dated June 1st, 1774. Now, this is significant because I think the earliest letter we've known from Mercy Scully is in 1776. June 1st is the day the Port Act takes effect. Okay, now when Parliament passes the Coercive Acts, one of the first things they do is shut the port of Boston until Boston pays for the tea. When you read this letter, it is incredible. First of all, she's an educated woman. She's coming out against King George III when at the time, if you came out against anyone, it was Parliament. I mean, it's treasonous to come out against King George III. She's actually doing that. Her letter is so fiery, she's writing to her cousin, explaining about the Port Act, what the effect it might have on Boston, and really, we need to put her up there on a similar echelon as Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis Warren as a very, very important daughter of liberty. Now, the Suffolk resolves. If Warren had done nothing else but write this document, we would owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. This was a declaration of rights and grievances that came out against the coercive acts. Now, on one of his lesser famous rides, 
Joseph Warren dispatches Paul Revere to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Now, we all know that northern-southern rivalry is nothing new when the Civil War happened. So when these delegates assemble in Philadelphia, they're carting with them their own prejudices. Massachusetts is sort of seen as this troublesome upstart colony that's making unnecessary problems for the rest of the colonies. So the mood there is very rancorous. When Revere arrives at the Continental Congress with these Suffolk resolves, miraculously, they are approved unanimously, which creates an immediate sense of unity. And really, this is an incredible feat for 56 different men from different parts of the colonies that are already upset with Massachusetts to begin with. So again, what's amazing about this as well is when you read the Suffolk Resolves, the language is so similar to the Declaration of Independence. And this is forgotten. Ask most people about the Suffolk Resolves. They don't know about it. Now, Paul Revere's ride. Why do we call it this? Now, nothing against Paul Revere, but as we know, Revere is captured by a British patrol unit. It's Warren whose intelligence networks actually sets off these rides. Now, what does Warren do when he hears that shots have been fired and eight militiamen are killed on Lexington Green? He actually goes and crosses the Charles River to participate in the fighting. He goes to Arlington and fight, which was at that point monotony, and is fighting and almost gets killed when a musket ball knocks out a pin on the side of his head. So, again, Warren actually participates in the battle. He's actually helping the wounded soldiers. And if you look at the primary source documents between that point and 1860, you don't really read about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. It's not really until the Longfellow poem comes out where Revere starts to get most of the credit. But again, Warren's heavy, heavy intelligence network really leads to the shot heard around the world, okay? Now, again, we know this because new information has come out in recent years. The New England Historic Genealogical Society just published the Hannah Crocker Mather Diaries. In that diary, Hannah Crocker Mather's father, who's married to Thomas Hutchinson's sister, tells of a mission she went on with intelligence papers from her father that were directed to deliver them only to Dr. Joseph Warren, and she hides them in the bosom of her dress and delivers them to Dr. Warren. We have a deposition from Paul Revere talking about him and 30 other mechanics that are monitoring tr British troop movements, and they're only supposed to report these movements to Dr. Warren and one or two others. And look, when you look at the journals of the provincial congresses and the Committee of Safety, Warren is writing letters talking about this intelligence network. He pays an individual because that individual was able to get letters from Thomas Hutchinson. So there's instances all over. And that's why I kind of laugh when I hear about this, you know, Washington spiring, because before Nathan Hill, before this spiring, there's Joseph Warren's intelligence network. And again, this is nothing that he gets credit for. Okay. So Revere has been referred to as the Mercury of the American Revolution because Warren is sending him on all these rides. But we're finally going to get it right this time, and I'll tell you why. This is the house where history has told us for 250 years that Warren dispatches Paul Revere and William Dawes from. Wrong. Warren leaves this house in 1772 and moves to a different property called the Chardon property, which was at the, quote, head of Wings Lane near the flesh and fish markets. So again, all these discoveries, when you put them together, it's important because it's like saying, 
Well, we just found out that the Declaration of Independence was signed 14 blocks away from Carpenter's Hall. I mean, all these things are meaningful, and when you add them all up, again, it just gives you a picture of Warren's life, personal and public. Okay, so we're going to skip to the Battle of Bunker Hill, okay? And this period between Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill has often been referred to as the 60 days. Now, I don't want to whitewash history or sanitize Warren's character. I mean, you can't help but build a respect for someone when you're writing about them. Warren had no business being at this battle. He's nominated a major general three days before the battle on June 14th. He shows up as a volunteer because he cannot appoint himself his own commission as head of the Provincial Congress. Now, he shows up, he's killed. We have two primary source letters, one from Abigail Adams, one from a Benjamin Hitchborn, talking about the British soldiers beheading Warren. One we knew was a rumor, one is questionable. We'll never really know unless there was a video camera on Bunker Hill, but this is what we can be sure about. There's letters from both the British side and the provincial side talking about when the British soldiers stormed that redoubt on the third assault. They are in an absolute blood rage and they take the breeches of their gun and beat in the heads of the wounded patriots, take their bayonets and stab them because this third charge is a bayonet charge. Now, the amazing thing is that Warren might as well have been wearing a bullseye that day because he shows up in his finery and when you compare that to the dark colored linen and frocks being worn by the provincial forces, he stood out. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, it's one of the great what-if questions in history. What if he had survived that battle? I mean, when you read some of these letters following the battle, people don't believe that Warren would have been there. They said he wasn't going to be there. He's lost, or maybe something happened. Maybe he was taken prisoner. When Thomas Hutchinson finds out about Warren's death, now Thomas Hutchinson, the royal governor, he had wrote, written a two-volume history of the Bay Colony, I don't think anyone knew Massachusetts politics, economy, any, anything more than Thomas Hutchinson knew. He writes that had Warren lived, he would have become the Cromwell of North America. Peter Oliver, the lieutenant governor, when he finds out about Warren's death, said had Warren lived, Washington would have been in obscurity. There's a, there's a British officer that writes, Dr. Joseph Warren was the greatest incendiary in all America. Now, these are people who knew Warren, and, and let's just think about it at the time, okay? Where are the founding fathers during this period? They're in Philadelphia. I mean, we know that in 71, 72, both Hancock and Adams drop out of this patriot movement. Adams retires. He said he doesn't want to be involved in politics, okay? Washington and Warren. So, you know, we're all guilty of this. We tend to look at these events sometimes with a 21st century mindset, but let's keep in mind that this is Boston 1775. It's not the miraculous victory at Yorktown at 1781, the end of the revolution in 1783. So Washington is appointed as the general of the Continental Army days before the Bunker Hill battle. Samuel Adams, John Adams, John Hancock, they're writing letters to Joseph Warren not General Artemis Ward saying, we've appointed a general for the army. Please welcome him. Please read his charge in front of the troops. Please make sure this transition of power goes smoothly because, again, this northern-southern rivalry. Everybody's heard of that famous quote that Washington wrote in the letter when he referred to New Englanders as a dirty, nasty rabble. Is, is everyone familiar with that? Okay, well, it's nice to see you guys have cleaned up over the centuries, okay? <laughs> But seriously, so when Washington arrives, he has to fill Dr. Joseph Warren's shoes. 
Now, think about it. There's no question about Washington's bravery, his heroics, his ethics, his morality. He's been involved in battles before. But keep in mind that Washington has been a retired colonel of the Virginia Regiment since 1758. He has not been involved in a military conflict for almost 20 years, let alone a successful one. Now, when he arrives, letters are being written by these provincial soldiers saying, a new general arrived today. I never heard of this man before. And just to give you an idea, in 1774, when John Adams arrives at the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia, he writes a letter and says, basically, that he was introduced to George Washington and writes, I never heard of this man before. Who is he? So again, Washington will become Washington. There's no doubt about that. But at this point, Washington is not Washington. So who is the hero in the colonies up to this point? General James Wolfe, right? He gets killed on the Plains of Abraham, but he's a British general. When you read these primary source documents, all these portraits or mezzotints in people's homes is of this famous painting, The Death of General James Wolfe. And here's the catch-22. Warren's killed on this afternoon and immediately becomes the first American martyr. So this one single afternoon overshadows 10 years of resistance activities because when anybody does remember him, it's as this hero and martyr of Bunker Hill. Now, Benedict Arnold, what's the connection with Warren? Well, we know that Arnold and Warren meet up briefly after Lexington and Concord. Arnold approaches Warren as the head of the Provincial Congress and says he has this idea to go capture Cannon at Fort Ticonderoga. Warren helps with that. He goes to the Provincial Congress, he gets money, he gets arms, he gets ammunition, and he sends Arnold on his way. Now, obviously, he meets up with Ethan Allen, they get the cannon, Knox goes up and gets it. This is what eventually breaks the siege of Boston. But I found an incredible letter that no one has ever seen before, and it was attached to this document. So this was a letter written from Warren's unofficial widow, Mercy Scully, to Benedict Arnold, July 1780, weeks before Arnold's treason's uncovered. You see that? That's how much Arnold gave for the care of Joseph Warren's four orphan children, almost 3,000 pounds, which in today's money would be almost $700,000. So it really shines a new light on Arnold's treason, a man who's been accused of putting coin above country. And part of this letter written, it says, from Mercy School, he says, as to any reliance on the generosity of individuals, tis fruitless. For the love of gain has silenced the tender feelings of the soul, and avarice alone reigns in the hearts of those who have it in their power to scatter with a liberal hand the plight of the children. The pains you have taken and the examples you set calls forth my gratitude. Who's Mercy School talking about? Sam Adams, John Hancock, John Adams. You know, here's the tragedy of Warren's story, okay? After he's killed, his brothers go to try and find his body at Breed's Hill. The news reaches his mother. Before the campaign moved south, part of the Continental Army set up shop on Warren's farm, which was about 80 acres. All the trees are cut down for firewood. And when the campaign moved south, basically their farmland is obliterated. They're financially ruined. They're one of the few families that never sought compensation from the Continental Congress for all the losses they sustained financially during the Revolution. Now, 
Similar to Alexander Hamilton's widow, Mercy Scully lives another 50 years. And what's heartbreaking is when you read her letters from the 1820s, she's talking about Warren as if he just died the other day. And the shame is that a nasty custody battle ensues because she's been taking care of the children. You know, a few weeks before Lexington and Concord, Warren sends her out to Worcester, Massachusetts with his, with his friend Dr. Dix to care for them. And, you know, I get questions all the time. Well, Warren stormed off to Bunker Hill in a blood rage. He wanted to die. No, that's not true because Warren's writing letters to Dr. Dix weeks before Bunker Hill telling him, please buy me an extra 12 acres of farmland because I want to spend the next year in agricultural pursuits. But again, Warren had no business being at this battle. Now, the legacy. Why do we forget Warren? Well, part of it is because of lack of primary sources, right? This one afternoon overshadows 10 years of resistance activities. But Warren's still very much part of the conversation. Anytime you read or see a Warren Street, Avenue, County, Township, it's named after Joseph Warren. There were more places named after Warren than Washington in the years following, okay? But here's a print that I found, and it just shows you that Warren's really relevant at this point. It's from the 1840s, okay? These are the first eight presidents. Here's George Washington. Here, each soldier here represents one of the 13 colonies. Here's General Lafayette, and here's Warren. And here's a close-up of that, okay? Now, John Collins Warren. I have to say, I was so struck because when I came in, they asked me to go in this room, and I couldn't believe that was old granary burial ground, and I'll explain why. So. John Collins Warren was one of the most active members to keep Warren's legacy alive. He helps create the Bunker Hill Monument Association. And what's amazing is that there's nine generations of Harvard doctors through John Warren, who was Joseph Warren's brother, okay? Now, these are, again, more pictures, more images. So these are pictures of Warren's skull. Warren is one of the most migratory corpses of the Founding Fathers. It's incredible. It really is. I mean, he's buried on Breeds Hill. He's moved in April of 76, buried right here in, in Old Granary Burial Ground. In 1825, he's moved across the street to St. Paul's Chapel. And then in 1856, he's laid to rest at Forest Hills. But you can see that's the bullet hole that hit him right there. And that's where it exits. Now. You know, when I was doing this research, I wanted to know what was the culture like, the economics, what were they eating, did they dance, what did they listen to? And you really try and get in the moment. And this really captured me because this is written by one of the son-in-laws who were in the underground crypt across the street at St. Paul's. And he writes, the shape of the skull of General Joseph Warren was very like those of the Warrens of the present generation. So just think about these men in this underground crypt holding Warren's skull, comparing it to their own. It's just, it's just an amazing piece of history. Now, the amazing thing is that John Collins Warren lived across the way at Park Street, so he, his library viewed two old granary burial grounds. So for years, he looked upon the tombs of these luminary patriots. Now, this is Warren's youngest child, Mary. She's buried in Greenfield, Massachusetts. I think she died a couple of weeks before Mercy Scully. She has one surviving son, and it's all the direct Warren descendants trace their lineage to this one son. And I include this picture because this is what's also important about the direct descendants. We know the linear descendants, nine generations of Harvard doctors who did the first operation with ether, one of them performed the first rhinoplasty. They're founders of Mass General, they're founders of Harvard Medical School. But what's amazing about the direct descendants is they boast an impressive military bloodline. There's nine West Point graduates, 
There's seven commissioned officers, six non-commissioned officers, and there's been a direct warrant descendant who served in every major American conflict since the Civil War. This is a picture of Warren Wildrick. So he was a Green Beret Special Forces in Vietnam, and he dies due to complications of Agent Orange. In October of 2016, the Freemasons of Massachusetts got together and had this statue built and dedicated it at Forest Hill, where Warren resides now. And I'm going to leave off with this. And I, believe me, I wish we had more time because there was so much more to cover. But I just tried to give you the, what I thought the most important, the most interesting points. But this was a print from the 1843 monument dedication. And it reads, honor to the illustrious dead. Their monument is immortality. And I want to leave with a quote from Warren that he wrote months before he died. And he wrote, when liberty is the prize, who would shun the warfare? Who would stop to waste a coward thought on life? And I write in the book that really Warren did it all. He did it with voice, pen, and sword. And this is why I consider him to be a founding grandfather, because he was on the scene before all the founding fathers, with a few exceptions like Samuel Adams. And I hope that Warren is somewhat immortal in our memories, and I hope he is making some sort of a renaissance comeback. Thank you.